get this. All right, let's roll. Cranking. We're we're cranking. We're going. All right, we're cranking. It's another Screen Heat Miami, and the stories coming out of Hollywood and Tinseltown are just burning hot after the Oscars, right? Salacious. <laughs> Salacious. Indeed. I've been Starting waiting to with- use that word. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to do, we're going to do a lot of, uh, a lot of shop talk this week because our good guest this week, of course, Carlos Gutierrez, who has his own film coming out locked in, uh, who is, is just a product of Miami, but also as he's going to mention, lived in Los Angeles, studied at NYU, considered one of the top two film schools in the country. So he's going to have a lot of his own Hollywood stories coming up as well. The Miami man made good. Oh, he did. Yeah, we love Carlos. He is uh, he's a mover and a shaker and extraordinarily talented as a writer director as well. Yeah. And a connection to one of our sponsors who we're going to let you know who those are right now. Cinevision. Yes, of course. Kajik Multimedia. Miami Medium Film Market. And Kamakol. Kamakol. So at Kamakol. Not too long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a table read. It was amazing, actually. Table read of three different scripts. Mm -hmm. Carlos, being a writer, director, having one of those scripts. I served as an actor on another one, um, someone that we interviewed, J.M. Garcia, but yes. Carlos, being right. a writer-director, he did a table read. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we'll be able to cut off a component of that and showcase it on our website on Screen oh, yeah. Miami and maybe yeah. some of the audio. But he had a table read of one of his scripts that he talks about in the interview, actually. Right. Another, yes, a, screen heat, a Screen Heat <clears throat> exclusive. But yeah, he has a film is. coming out just now, Friday night. Yes. Seven o'clock. Seven p.m. Go to the theaters. They're open again. Theaters are open. <laughs> and you know, amazing film, amazing actress, amazing Mina cast. Savari. Yeah, she's t- she's terrific. I love Mina Savari. I wanted to say Beauty. it, but I could I couldn't yeah. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to say it in an interview. <laughs> I couldn't I was trying to find my my way to sneak it in, you know, one of yes. my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, breakout role. Yeah, yeah an, an indelible effect on me as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as, you know, comedy. She did American Pie and all the sequels. Yeah, yeah. Great, great, love great her. body of work. Absolutely. Love her. So she's the star of, of his upcoming film. It's a thriller. Yeah. So, you know, everyone should definitely check this one out. I feel, you know, in this day and age, it's it, it's not as easy to get the buzz about films that are going to be in the theater. But I think that this film is going to be a buzz about film of the year. Oh, yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, because there aren't a lot of films going theatrical, it is going to be day and date, he mentioned. So you can also get it on VOD uh, starting uh, May 7th as well. And so, but yes, it'll be testing the grounds of the theatrical experience once again. And, and you know, thrillers tend to do very well. So I think that, yeah. uh, you know, there's a lot of hope for Carlos and and hopefully the momentum and the energy of, of the launch of his first feature film as a writer-director uh, will propel him into other projects. We hope Open House gets made. And, you know, he was part of that Miami Media and Film Market sponsored Table Read Theater, which was actually created by Joe Garcia. He created the Table Read Theater concept. And then we jumped on board to sponsor the first three and produce them as, as videos, which may also become podcasts. So we're really excited. We're editing those right now, uh, hard at work in post-production, but they should be out pretty soon. 
looking forward to those. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're super excited. Patty Harris is going crazy, championing all our projects as she usually does and getting ready for MMFM 11, which we're going to talk about more on a future podcast. Yeah, it's coming up. I'm excited. Always excited for yeah. the actual MF, MMFM where we will physically be in the space. So, mm-hmm. and that's where we launched Screen Heat Miami. That's right. Yeah, it was uh, birthed out of that uh, plethora of riches that we usually get at MMFM and grabbing all those interviews, which did a great job while I was moderating. So that was fantastic. So we're definitely going to be doing more of that in September. It's going to be fun. Yeah. So moving forward into the salaciousness of what's going on in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I want to get into this ICM partner story that broke a big expose in the LA Times, but, you know, I think we should just do a, a very quick recap of the Oscars, uh, right? Uh, you know, yeah. that, that just happened. And so, you know, obviously we know it was a much different year because of the pandemic. Very, very uh, lower key sort of event. Although they tried some new interesting things. Steven Soderbergh was a producer of the Oscars this year and they claimed to try to make it more cinematic. So they had this really cool little lounge uh, where folks were kind of hanging out and socially distancing while chatting, uh, you know, in the background while they were interviewing the stars in the foreground. Uh, you know, they had some DJs playing, you know, Quest Love was there. It was a lot of fun. And then uh, the Oscars took off and they they didn't do it at the Dolby. They actually did it at uh, the, uh, the train station there, Union Station in downtown Los Angeles. Beautiful venue. And they created these little kind of, uh, I guess, these little uh, lounge ch- tables where everyone was kind of separated. And, you know, eh, I think they tried some. It was kind of hit and miss for me. I, I did lose a little bit of interest. I thought that they could have done a little more to make it more entertaining. Uh, you know, as we know, a lot of films didn't get theatrical release last year because of the pandemic. So a lot of folks were saying just the nominees weren't at the level that they're used to seeing. A lot of the stars that they're used to seeing weren't there. So, you know, it, eh, we'll, we'll see. And, oh, they didn't actually perform the original music numbers, which they always perform during the Oscars. They did it as a pre-recorded thing during the pre-show which eh, wasn't a big fan of that. So, we'll you see. know, I really did love it with the Grammys, the way that they pulled that off and they had all the artists in one room and they kind of went right. around the room. I think that that, that that was very well done. To see something mm-hmm. like that, you know, where they kind of had everything encapsulated in one room could have been, you know, really interesting. But, yeah. you know, in, in terms of the offerings, no, Nomadland was one of my favorite films of last year. I mean, yeah, I and it loved yeah. this movie. It yeah. won Best Picture and Best Director, which accomplished, it checked off a, a, a few, it ticked off a few different firsts, you know, first um, right. woman, Asian, yeah. um, Best Director. Um, you know, it is the, the second woman Best Director but within the 93 year history. So, you know, even right. that in and of itself was huge. I mean, yeah. you know, so, so, so you're checking off a lot of marks, a lot of boxes. Um, yeah. A, a oh, lot yeah. of boxes. Yeah. Francis, Francis McDormand won for best actress. She was also a producer on that mm-hmm. film. So th- there's a lot to be said about that. Um, actress in best supporting role, Yoo Jong Yoon in Minari. So that was huge. Daniel, Kaluuya, actor in a supporting role. I mean, a lot of people aren't sure if, you know, he was the lead in that or not. I mean, everyone did a tremendous job and everyone did what they were supposed to do. It's just that 
the character that he played was so dynamic, Fred Hampton. So, mm. you know, his presence on screen just felt huge. It felt big. And then for me with that performance, if you listen to Fred Hampton and you listen to Daniel Kalu- Kaluuya, I mean, he just did a tremendous job emulating this man. And, and, and you know, Daniel Kaluuya is a British. So for him to encapsulate that spoke a lot. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah won for best song as well. Animated feature, soul, Ma right. Rainey's Black Bottom, makeup and hair. So yeah, a lot know, of awards. It, Although that that does bring up the big sort of question of the night. You know, uh, besides, honestly, my favorite moment was when Tyler Perry gave his speech, and that uh, humanitarian award that they gave him was really special. And his speech, as always, he's a. We've talked about this before. He's such a brilliant orator and so inspirational. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the other sort of twist of you know this year's Oscars was Best Picture was not the last award of the night. It was actually Best Actor, uh, yeah. where everyone was. Ex- of course, for Chadwick Boseman to win a posthumous Oscar for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. But in a complete Hollywood-style twist, the award actually went to Anthony Hopkins, who apparently was asleep uh, in his bed in (laughs) Wales. Uh, You know, he didn't attend. Uh, Apparently, he said afterwards he offered to be on Zoom, and they said, no, that's not necessary. And so he just kind of dozed off to sleep, woke up in the morning, was like, Bloody hell, I want an Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can speak to Chadwick Boseman's performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. For me, that was one of the best performances of last year. Um, I saw Gary Oldman in Mank. I still haven't seen Stephen Yeun in in Minari. I haven't seen Anthony Hopkins in The Father. But, I mean, not just of last year, but for me, that was one of my favorite performances in film by Chadwick Boseman. And I can tell you, it took me by surprise when I first started watching the film and knowing, you know, so we, we think retroactively, you know, Chadwick Boseman was, was sick and du- during all of these films and we didn't know it. Right. So, you know, you have a different inflection knowing that he's sick. So when the film f- first started and you saw him in the film, you know, you kind of have that in the back of your mind and you're thinking maybe his performance is one way because maybe he's not you know, feeling, you know, as, as well as Mm. in the past. Yeah. But it wasn't that it was a layer that it was just another layer that he played in that, into that character, not, you know, it was a vulnerability that Mm. that character had that was necessary to set up what ended up happening at the end. And that performance was just dynamic. It was a tour de force. Yeah. So it was a lot good. of people yeah. were, were expecting that one to, to, to go to Chadwick Boseman. Mm. I'm going to yeah. look at everything else and, and you know, yeah. we'll talk yeah. about it later on. We have to. The father hasn't really even been released that widely yet. So we haven't even had a chance to really see it. But yeah, I saw Chadwick as well. It was a very powerful, like you said, performance. And then, like you said, knowing what he was going through at the time was makes it even more uh, amazing that he was able to pull that off. So 
Absolutely. But yeah, overall, an interesting Oscars. We'll see how it goes next year. But in the meantime, as we know, Hollywood does, never stops and the hot water never stops. And that's what we were kind of teasing before. Right. So a uh, big story dropping in the L.A. Times earlier this week. Uh, basically, ICM partners, uh, for those of you who don't know, ICM makes up one of the big four agencies in Hollywood, uh, was hit with allegations of mistreating women and people of color at the agency. Apparently, former staffers and assistants uh, were basically complaining about uh, gross mistreatment, uh, you know, everything from, uh, you know, not advancing people of color, not getting them into the agent trainee program. Apparently, at one point, they produced a video promoting their trainee program, uh, which apparently was made up of mostly white folks. And they had uh, whatever black employees, I guess they did have at the time, kind of fill in as background extras to show diversity, which is kind of like, oh, boy. Um, so that that didn't land very well, obviously. Uh, and and we'll see what the fallout is. I mean, they are a powerful agency. They do, again, represent some pretty powerful folks, including Spike Lee, which uh, Carlos Gutierrez uh, talks about. Shonda Rhimes is a client as well. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Um, you know, uh, where all this goes in terms, you know, obviously the, the, the board of ICM, uh, ICM partners now, uh, issued a strong statement saying that this isn't true and that they do promote diversity and that, you know, whatever matters had come up with these former employees were handled internally. And and they were also defended by one of their board members, actually Lori Bartlett, who is black, uh, and, and defended the agency essentially basically saying that, you know, that, that a lot of this is, is not true and it, and they do promote diversity and, She's actually the first uh, black female to be a board member at a, at a major agency. So that, I guess, coming from her shows that there, there may very well be two sides of the story. Yeah. Well, you know, there are always two sides to a story. I know that the percentage in terms of the upper echelons of Hollywood um, skews in one way. And that's been a big part of the conversation as a whole. So... You know, we'll just have to see as things move forward. You know, we just talked the Academy Awards. This has been one of the most diverse in terms of, you know, winners and deservedly so. I mean, all of the films were on that level. So I would say that there's a, a change has happened, but there's changes that have happened before that have come and gone. So, you know, we'll be on top of it to see as this story matriculates. Um, and we always have a tendency to come back to stories. So, you know, we'll see what happens. You worked at ICM. Yeah. And that's, uh, we, I think we talked a little bit about it on an earlier podcast, but yeah, I, I did spend a few years working there, uh, in there, in one of their departments. And it was an interesting experience. I was there, you know, from, you know, the early 2000s, the early knots, uh, which will relate to another story we're going to talk about, uh, during the entourage days, uh, <laughs> right. I was out there in LA, uh, you know, uh, as an assistant there in my early twenties and it was an experience. It was hard and i'll be honest yeah it was it was a pressure cooker it was kind of i guess most akin to like working on wall street or the boiler room kind of deal uh where it's it's high pressure you know there are millions of dollars on the line uh you know assistants have to wake up extraordinarily early make sure that everything's organized for their bosses when they walk in you're you know what they used to call i don't know if they still call it rolling calls most of the day which means you know you're going between calling uh, other agents clients studios and it's just this frantic pace of constantly uh 
getting work for your clients that aren't working, making sure your clients that are working are being taken care of, and then trying to recruit and woo new clients at the same time. Uh, and it, it can be daunting, you know, not only for the agents, but for all the support staff uh, that work with them. And yeah, and you know, obviously it is sort of a, a very uh, alpha type of environment uh, where, you know, uh, between the agents themselves showing who is the top dog, so to speak. And so that can get a little hairy, you know, like a lot of, you know, adult language is used. A lot of uh, chest pounding. Yeah, a lot of chest pounding, you know, the guys and the girls, to be honest. Um, you know, we have, we basically have uh, a world where, you know, you live or die by your, what clients you have and, and how good of a job you do at booking them, not only on, on lucrative projects, but the right projects to further their career. So it's, it's quite intense. Uh, and so, you know, I can see, you know, some of the gripes of, of maybe sort of our uh, more woke young folks that are entering that business today versus folks before who were basically told, look, you're just paying your dues. If you can get through this sort of boot camp, you can be something in the industry. Uh, you know, obviously some agents, just like we talked about Scott Rudin, probably take it way too far uh, and have to kind of rein that in. Um, you know, but I think there's a certain level of intensity that that could potentially be healthy. If not, then, you know, there isn't really that pursuit of passion sometimes. So I think there has to be a balance. Yeah. Well, when you get to the top of the heap and you're at the top of the top, mm. typically the top of the top, they got there for a reason. Sure. Clawed yeah. their way there. Yeah. A type personality, chest Absolutely. pounding, whether male or female. You right. Know, a lot of adrenaline. So, oh, yeah. Absolutely. That, go, that goes along with the game. But, it, you know, it looks like a, a bit of it is changing. You know, you don't have to hit oh, somebody yeah. in the head with a stapler <laughs> just right. to get your way. So, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 There, there are certain things that even we knew back in our days and, and, the, and our predecessors before, if they were, they were sort of over the line. And I do believe that overall in this totality they have found good ways of kind of reining that back and really disciplining those uh you know executives and and managers and bosses and 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 uh heavyweight producers that have now crossed the line it's become more public now because not only stories like the la times and the new york times but also because of social media's role in all of this and younger folks feeling freer to speak out and having an audience so i think that eventually it will it will balance itself out yeah so we do have some potential good news. Um, yes. Although there was good news, you know, the Oscars in, in terms of the output of the Oscars, that, that's really, really great news. But, you know, in terms of infrastructure, it seems like there may be some good news. Yeah. Another Hollywood story. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the Arclight Cinema, uh, unfortunately, having to file for bankruptcy and not making it through the pandemic. Uh, and one of their properties includes, of course, the iconic Cinerama Dome in Hollywood, uh, which has been home to many huge red carpet premieres, special event screenings. It's a favorite of filmmakers and artists and actors. And you've seen uh, it in movies and movies yeah, and movies you've, you've and seen TV it. shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's always been, uh, I think it was featured also in Tarantino's last movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I believe that they at least showed a montage of it or, or whatever, but it really is like... Um, uh, a favorite home of the cinephiles, particularly in Los Angeles. And, and unfortunately being part of the Arclight family uh, is also um, 
suffering, but it looks like there are suitors. There are talking that allegedly there are groups interested in purchasing that and some of the other Arclight properties and actually helping to bring them back to life. Uh, they're not giving too many specifics right now. I guess they're still in sort of, you know, talk about agencies, the deal-making stage, perhaps, yeah. kind of going back and forth on some of the tricks, sort of the, the trickier parts of the contract. Apparently, the company that was managing these theaters also owns the land underneath Cinerama Dome because they built it way back in the 60s. Oh, wow. And so there's a little bit of like, you know, they're the landlord, but they're also the tenant. So how yeah, do you yeah, separate yeah. the two uh, and make a deal? But I'm sure they'll figure it out. You know, it's uh, yeah. if anyone knows how to make a deal, it's L.A. folk. Yeah, there you go. So that's <laughs> sounding good. You know, we're, yeah, very we're positive. See where so that goes. Absolutely. For us, one of our, our bigger film festivals for for our, um, our film that's still doing the festival circuit was at the Arclight Cinemas. It was a partnership with um, Slamdance and the Arclight mm-hmm. Cinemas, Slamdance Emergence. So, you know, we were really, they, they, they didn't cancel it and they didn't um, have it go virtual because they were looking for it to, once everything, you know, came back to normal, to actually have it there at, you know, the theaters. So, you know, I'm hoping that that, that works out and then you know we're able to go ahead and and make that happen uh, absolutely something yeah. i was looking forward to but yeah. i am looking forward to our audience hearing this amazing interview this interview is is, is incredible it's almost a master class in a way oh, yeah. um and also i'm looking forward to this movie so uh without further ado we carlos, carlos Gutierrez. Gutierrez. oh yeah <laughs> Let's we crank are it. cranking. We are cranking. We've been We're cranking going. with Carlos. Cranking with Carlos. That's the new segment. <laughs> <laughs> we are cranking yeah, with it's Carlos. It's a good name. It's a good one. How yeah, you doing, Carlos. You're good, man. Welcome awesome. to the show. <laughs> this is the big. This is the big week for Locked In. Very excited. Yes. For the first, congratulations about the film coming out finally this week on Friday, May the seventh. Theater and VOD, right? That is correct. Dan date. Day it's like the day. big boys. I love it. <laughs> Just like the big boys. You know? In the well, big leagues. I, we're excited, man. Like, you know, I pushed for Miami to really be one of the major cities that we're going to release in. They were looking at more like northern Florida, central Florida. And I really pushed on Miami to be, you know, have at least three or four theaters to, to show. And so I'm really excited that, that you guys, first of all, are giving us this opportunity to talk about Locked In. Number two, that people in Miami are going to be able to see it in an actual theater with people close to them six feet apart well i was gonna say especially miami with you and your cuban extended family i'm sure you can fill up half the theaters yourself what makes you think i haven't bought all the tickets already they're <laughs> <laughs> gonna be like listen it did really well in some places but in miami there was this crazy uptick <laughs> <laughs> right right there yeah. you go so um usually we start off with the journey of the filmmaker okay. and we we are gonna in just a couple of minutes get to the journey but i just want to just at the top of the key since your film is coming out on friday can you tell us give us you know just a brief on what the film is what it's about and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts and the development of how that happened as we go through the interview but i just want to hear the this beginning electricity about the film that's awesome. Thank At you, the top of the key. Uh, So the film is called Locked In, 
It's a thriller suspense film that I wrote and directed. It was a labor of love, as you can imagine. And uh, like I said, we'll get into that. But Locked In is a film that is about a mother and a daughter who get trapped overnight in a self-storage facility by two criminals who are looking for something in one of the lockers. And so it becomes this really interesting cat and mouse film where the characters, you hopefully fall in love with them in the first act. And then by the second and third, you know, we don't take our foot off the gas and you are just going and going and it's suspenseful. It does have some scary moments, uh, even though it is just a thriller, it's not a horror film, but it is uh, a film that really kind of finds you watching it for the genre trappings, but hopefully staying around to see what happens with this mother and daughter team that, you know, they have to resolve their own personal issues. And I love films that have a really strong A and B story, but, you know, the A story is really like, what are these thieves after and how are they going to get at it? And then the B story is really what's happening with the mother and the daughter and how they're going to resolve their own issues throughout the film. Yeah. I mean, that could ultimately be, I mean, it's, that's like A and A. Actually. Yeah. It's A yeah. story and A story. So, yeah. Um, it's really about how the story makes the characters confront something in themselves. That is really yeah. what filmmaking is about. And if you can get the audience to believe that that is happening in the two hours or 90 minutes that you have for your film, that's where people really jive with the film. Yeah. Hmm. It, it, it stars one of my favorite actresses, too. I mean, I'm really, I mean, for you to get her has been. I mean, that has to have been, you know, a big, big coup. I mean, you know, she, she's it was, such it a was a team effort. Look, Mina Savari is someone that's been known for 20 years. She's been acting for 20 years and she, you know, has been in Oscar nominated films, huge franchises. And so the thing with her was she wanted to know that me as a director, that I was going to take care of her, that yeah. the character and what she has to say in the film is something that is as important as the genre it is. You know, the suspense part. That I wasn't going to just dismiss her character and just put her running through hallways and running in and out of cars or what have you. You know, she wanted to make sure that the acting was going to be stellar. And I think it is. I mean, really, I think her performance is what drives the film. Awesome. Wow. So we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of the actual yeah. movie as we drive down this road from... <laughs> where you started maybe you came out of the womb and you're like fully formed i'm going to be a filmmaker I, 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 and i know people like that no, actually I, i'm not spielberg shooting super eight films at eight years old no no, no. that was him I, I, right yeah i i wasn't that uh at all gifted as a kid i i was a writer like i started as a writer by trade i mean like i just i had a writer sensibility uh my grandfather was a poet i'm a published poet as well i was just trying everything short stories everything that I could try my hand at, that's what I was trying. And it was fortunate because I had a mentor in, uh, in school in my undergrad college that kind of plucked me, you know, from the group and said, you, I think may have a talent for this. And he stressed the word may, this is, you know, this is a hard knocks guy. This is a, you know, New York professor, uh, guy really understood filmmaking he had written a couple scripts sold a couple scripts studio films and it, it is like everything else in life it's it's paying it forward like i had two mentors that were incredibly helpful to my career whether they knew it or not 
uh, at the time. And then I right now trying to do the same with, you know, the new generation and trying to educate them and say, Hey, a classic film is in Pulp Fiction. We all love Pulp Fiction, <laughs> but that's not a classic film. It's become a classic, but it's not a classic film. Right. And so yeah. I, I say, look, it's great that, you know, Pulp Fiction and it's great that you think, uh, you know, what have you, uh, a movie from 2004 is a classic film, but you really have to study the masters who brought everyone to that point. And, you know, for every Fincher, there is a David Lean, you know, et cetera. And we can go down the list, but it's, if you don't know who these people are, it's really hard to showcase what you're going to say and how you're going to say it when you do a film. Yeah. And to that point, you know, it's oftentimes said, and, you know, now within this dynamic, you know, you go back far enough, maybe Quentin Tarantino, when he came out with Pulp Fiction, the time parameters of which it came out does denote this sort of classic in terms of how far back it was released. But there are films and filmmakers that um, are part of the more traditional classic canon that -hmm. came up before I was born, way before I was born. You know, you can go all the way back to Akira Kurosawa, Satyajit Ray, um, you know, Truffaut, and the list goes on, and Godard, the list goes on and on. And, you know, those should also be included when you talk about, you know, what to look at in this build. And I, I teach as well. So, you know, part of, you know, my coursework is, hey, let's look at the entire history before you talk about, you know, this well, is a if you ever need a substitute a teacher, I'd happy to do it because, you know, I love teaching the younger generation. It's just finding topics that keep them interested. And it's it's not about, you know, shoving it down their throat and making them watch a bunch of stuff just for the sake of watching because it's some, some AFI classic list. But having something to say why you pick those films. Like, I right. love Tarantino because, and this might seem like a weird reason why I love him, but, you know, he was a big advocate of films that didn't get their due. And I think that's yeah. really cool because he was always saying, hey, for every um, XYZ movie that you guys gave five Oscars to, what about this film? Nobody talks about that film anymore. That yeah. movie's a classic. In my mind, that's a classic. And I think yeah. that's cool because there, when I was growing up, I really tended to like genre films. You know, I loved horror films and I loved thriller films and I loved bloody shootouts like The Wild Bunch. And, you know, and you slowly are taught in a way that those are not uh, respected, right? <laughs> in, in, in respectful company of, you know, the Truffauts and Godards and et cetera. And what you realize is that's not true. You just have to like what you like. Well, yeah, and that's right. Follow those people and those masters. I mean, you have to be a master of every filmmaker that's, a, you know, you don't have to be Scorsese who literally knows every film that's ever been made. Yeah. Apparently. And, but you um, should know the films of your genre, you know, the one that yeah. you love. And then, and, yeah. and, then and, and then I do recommend, you know, and going outside things, right? of your, you know, going right. outside of what you love that can only enhance. So, you know, we're, we're, we're still in a place. We still have to go a little bit further back than okay. film school. We like to go all the way back. So go can back, you tell us back. a little bit about your heritage, where you're from, you know, your parents, yeah. your lineage, and, sure. you know, this whole, this progression towards even getting into knowing that oh, yeah. film was the direction okay. that you wanted to go. 
don't start me talking because this might have to be like a two hour podcast. But I was born and raised in Miami to Cuban immigrants. Uh, you know, it's kind of the typical story in Miami. But, you know, I, I do really feel like Miami uh, and the Cuban culture, the Hispanic culture, if you will, really helped shape me personality wise. It gave me an identity. I feel like every Miami kid, I think, can say this, that you have an identity when you leave Miami. Uh, and when you get to somewhere like uh, I was I, I went to school in Boston. And when I got there, I remember how weird it was being there and, and realizing how different I really was. And at first you kind of pull back because you don't want to stand out. You know, you want to fit in with everybody. And what I realized really quickly was thanks to these mentors that, that I did have a voice and I did have a certain thing I was trying to say and that I shouldn't shy away from what my personality was, you know, a Miami born and bred filmmaker. And once I kind of embraced that, that changed everything for me. And then, you know, so I finished my undergrad. I get into advertising, started doing a lot of the kind of typical advertising commercials, producing and directing commercials. And I was at the same time on the side doing a lot of short films because I thought, you know, hey, what better ways? Just, you know, do your like $2,000 short films where they were terrible. They were so bad that I don't ever want to show this to anybody. And so the funny part for me was, that the more I did them, the the worse they got in a weird way. But I heard recently this thing from like, I think it was Steven Soderbergh who was saying, you just got to get all these short films done and get this crap out of your system. Because it is, it, it is a lot of bad ideas that have to be shaped and nuanced. And you kind of almost keep repeating the same story sometimes. And so in doing so, I was still working on my writing. And that's actually what got me into NYU grad school. So when I applied to NYU grad school, um, it's a very small program. It's very different from the undergrad. It's They basically admit a very, very small number of people. And um, and so that was a big part. And they, they basically picked me because of the writing. Because when you go into the NYU grad program, you're going in as a writer-director. They want to churn out writer-directors. Their, their idea is not to turn out writers or just directors they want writer directors they they subscribe very much to the auteur theory which i'm sure many people know what it is but i'll just say it it's the idea that the french filmmakers came up with the idea of the auteur who is the author of the film and the way you can be the author of your film is you write and direct it you control every element of the film no no yeah i was just gonna say uh you know obviously yeah that's that, that's obviously so, an interesting way to kind of get into that field because so often we think of uh, filmmakers as being either writers or directors or producers. But, you know, if you want to sort of control your own destiny, the ability to write your own stories, to develop your own material and then champion it while also having sort of the the visual toolkit to direct uh, is a really powerful one-two punch. And and so it makes sense that NYU kind of espoused that as, as a principle of their particularly of their graduate school, because they they really see that as, you know, as a strong element. Plus, you know, you'll talk about some of the directors that even taught some of your classes, whether it was Spike Lee or Scorsese, and they kind of all espouse to that similar mantra, right? For sure. I mean, and, and the reality is, and they will tell you, the reason that NYU allows so few people into the grad program is because there is, by statistics, statistical standards in Hollywood, there are very few writer-directors. Now, it's becoming more of a thing, thankfully, uh, but, you know, it's still a 
someone is writing it and someone else is directing it uh, industry because of the amount of people involved. Uh, it's very hard to be a Chris Nolan at the studio level, you know, where you're writing and directing the material. And even Chris Nolan to a degree has gotten help from his brother, from yeah. I think one other person, you know, he's not always the writer and director. And it's just very hard at that level to do it all yourself. Um, and so NYU really taught me the skills, I think, to kind of do things from the bootstraps, up. you know, just really you're responsible for every element of your film, raising the money, casting, and they espouse to that. It's like, you know, it's like joining a religion, like you have to buy into it. And NYU is very much a boot camp. I mean, it's not like you're not there to goof off. It's not undergrad. It is a very serious program where they rank you. And if you don't make the top ranking, they basically have a really serious conversation with you and say, listen, this might not be for you, you know? And uh, my first year, I actually was at the bottom. I was in the bottom, let's say third. I don't remember how many you know were in front of me, but it was probably the bottom third. And I kind of said to myself, okay, if I'm going to really do this, I got to like, I got to show all my cards. Like, you know, I think I was playing it too safe the first year. I was just kind of like, maybe, you know, wasn't allowing myself to be personally open to doing anything that my brain would do. I was kind of like, maybe they'll like this or maybe they'll like that. And once I gave up that and I just started doing what I'd love to watch, that's when everything changed for me. So the next film I did in my second year won me the uh, Directors Guild of America Award for Best Student Filmmaker. And uh, subsequently, I was also picked for uh, the HBO Latino Filmmaker Grand Prize, which they gave me a grant to do a short film that I wrote. And uh, again, it was all based on writing. So writing has always been my go-to, you know, when, when things aren't going well, the writing for me is my psychiatrist. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah th this is great. I just want to interject. Um, while we're in the pocket about writers, the writer directors, we yeah. interviewed Gregory Allen Howard, uh, who's had a long mm -hmm. story career, everything from remember the Titans to yeah. Harriet more recently and so many things in between. And in that you can go and our listeners can go back and listen to that podcast. I think it was about our 28th podcast. Um, you're our 48th. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've been moving. We've been, we've been putting the work in. Yeah. So and they, they, they're all phenomenal. You know, every everyone has had, you know, seminal moments within each one. But uh, Greg said that um, there's probably about 10 top tier writer directors in all of Hollywood. Quentin Tarantino is one of them. I'm not going to yep. mention the others on the list. But, you know, when you think about that, you know, in, in all of Hollywood, I mean, this is he's an A-list writer, you know, and, and sure. arguably one of the, uh, the biggest bio, biopic writers, you know, today. But, you know, when you think about that, that does really tell you, you know, the, the levels and the difficulties of, of being a writer, director on that level, you know, so. Yeah, because, and I'll, I'll give it to you, because here's the thing. If you're a writer, you're going in to pitch your material sometimes just to a producer or maybe just to a producer and director team that have decided to hook up. Um, like, let's say, image, uh, Imagine Entertainment, right? So as Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, that's a team. But, you know, Ron Howard doesn't write his material. He finds materials like Gregory's. And so imagine having to do all that yourself. You're the writer. You're going to pitch the studio. You're bringing in your producers. Maybe you're producing yourself. And then you're pitching your vision off. 
So I think that is the challenge of why there's not enough writer directors out there because it's that, you know, you are almost asked to put on two hats yeah. at the same time because they're going to drill you about the script and things they want to change. And then they're going to drill you about, well, how are you going to pull this out visually? You know, like the Coen brothers have always had a great career because they've stayed under the radar for the yeah. most part of their career. You know, once they won the Oscar, all bets were off. But up until No Country, they had basically stayed under the radar. They were just writer directors. They, 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 they never accepted big budgets. They made a, a point in their career because they knew that that was asking for trouble in their viewpoint. In other words, they would always say, no one's going to question a Fargo that costs, you know, at that time, I don't know what it was, 10 million bucks or something. Um, they're not going to question it because there's no risk. It was a small movie, you know? Yeah. The second Fargo costs $100 million, guess what? Everybody's going to ask why you're doing, why is it set in the snow? Well, we have statistics that tell us you should set it in the tropics because people want to go to the tropics when they go to the movies, <laughs> you know, whatever the reason is. And so um, that's a big part of it. But going back to NYU, the, the the biggest person that helped me there was clearly Spike Lee having his influence there as a teacher and also as a mentor was a big part of it. And it was uh, part of the demystification of the process of directing. You know, Spike is a writer director, but he's principally known as a director, you know, uh, much like Scorsese. Scorsese is a writer director and did teach a couple of our classes, but he's principally known as a director, even though he's written some of his scripts. Um, and what Spike was great at was no BS, no window dressing to the process. And then I was fortunate enough to get selected to be his assistant, uh, along with a couple of friends of mine in the class, outside of the class, uh, which meant you get to be his shadow on all his features that he was doing. And the man does like four major projects a year. It's insane. And he runs an ad agency, you know, and is a huge Knicks fan. <laughs> <laughs> How does so, he make it to all think, those Knicks games? I don't yeah. understand. Dude, he, he, you know, he has like a, a 6 p.m. cutoff. It's like, that's it. You know, they wrap at 6 and he's out the door and he's at the game by 7.30. And, and it was funny because, you know, uh, film school students aren't exactly known for being sports fans. So I think the reason him and I get along so well, you know, we get tired of talking about something, a, a film or, you know, he's probably just tired of talking about his own stuff while he's in prep. And I'd be like, dude, those Knicks are doing terrible, boy. <laughs> and he'd be like you bet, and I was like did you see that shot Dwayne Wade hit on you guys in the third oh. and you know they would just start that and so we had a good relationship and you know he he was he was very you know instrumental as he is to most of the people he mentors he mentors a lot of people uh, but just uh, the demystification of the process which I think is becoming more of a thing uh in general with, you know, YouTube videos behind the scenes. And I encourage all filmmakers, um, even if you've already done projects or you've never done one project, watch as many of those as possible because what it does is it, it orientates you to when you're going to do it yourself, you're like, oh, I've seen this. I already know what this is like. That doesn't take away anything from your talent. Your talent still has to deliver when you're on set. But sort of like not getting enamored by the lights and the people and everything, you know, because it is really as one of my professors would say, it's about the life in front of the camera. You know, yeah. the life in front of the camera is what you as the director have to worry about. Everything else is just someone else's problem to a degree. Yeah. Um, you know? I have to say on, on the note of Spike Lee, I did work with him as an actor. So in front of the camera on a commercial. 
And wow. to see that man work was just something else. For the commercial, there was a song that we had to like do a number to. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have the song before. You know, everything, it happened so fast. The, the, the whole um, idea of them producing the commercial and everything. So it happened so fast that, you know, we got the song when we were in the green room. And, you know, they kept telling us, okay, just keep going over this song in your head. Keep going it over, over in your head. And then when we got on set, you know, the way that he choreographed everything. And next thing you know, we're doing all these dance steps. Yeah, remember, he's done musicals, him. dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That. Yeah, he did. Yeah, it did, it did. It did start with School Days, and that was more of a, a musical than anything. Um, you know, he's a master, you know. And by the end of the, the shoot, you know, we had this song in our head and the dance steps and the whole nine yards. And I'm not a dancer by any stretch of the imagination, nor were the actors of the of. I mean, you know, they had dancers kind of like in, in the periphery, real dancers, you know? Right, right, right. His process is just so dynamic, you know? He, he, he's truly a master. So to, you know, be able to, uh, to, to shadow and, 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 and connect with someone like him had, had to be, you know, so no, tremendous, and, man. And, and forget, listen, put, put a pin in Spike for a second. Think about the team around him. He had Maddie Libatique, Oscar-nominated DP of Black Swan, Iron Man, the list goes straight out of Compton, you know, as a master. Yeah. He was a beast just to follow him. And I love cinematographers and I study cinematographers and I love cinematography in general. I'm a frustrated cinematographer, but I just, the math just kills me. The amount of like, okay, this subtract. <laughs> so I leave it to the experts. But, um, you know, just having all those people around him and yeah. then the actors we got to be participating with and, and watch the rehearsals and watch the walkthroughs with Woody Harrelson, with uh, Monica Bellucci, with Anthony Mackie. Dude, the list just went on and on and on. And so, you know, it was just, uh, it was one of those things that was just a really fortunate um, set of circumstances, you know, that if, if Spike hadn't come across, or hadn't come across Spike in my classes, I you know it would have been a very good experience at NYU, but I think that's what, that's what put it over the top for me because I said, I can do this. I, I know I can't do it right now, but I can do this in a very short amount of time. And you yeah. have to have that confidence. You know, it's not ego. It's not saying you're the best. It's saying, okay, if you're not intimidated by it and you love what you're watching, you will get there. If the, right. the process of what he's doing scares the shit out of you, can I swear on this? I don't know if I can. But scares the S out of you. I mean, you could like say, an, come on, man. This is yeah, Miami. Miami. Yeah, that's true. This is Miami. You get, you get bonus points if, if you curse in Spanish, too. So let's remember that. Coño. Coño. You know, yeah. but if you if you say to yourself as a filmmaker, no matter your experience level, you watch that, you go, I can never do this. You're done. That's it. You got to just go do something else. But yeah. if you see it and go, I don't know how to do what he does yet, but that's what I want to do. That's a huge part of it. And and I've I've seen it with assistants of mine who think they want to be directors because they think they know what a director does. Um, and then they get in the process and they go, wow, that talking to actors thing is just way too... That's way too much, you know. <laughs> Everybody wants to be a director, you know. When I, yeah. you know, yeah. JL and I first, I mean, we went to UM, you know. And when you first yeah. start, that's what everybody, you know, when you first start, everybody is headed in that direction. But by the time you get to the end, it's like, 
you know, yeah. you can count on your your hand. Your no, yeah, it, it, and there's nothing wrong with that either. No, 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 it's, be not. Really clear. it's not because everybody decides, you know, what pockets the directors they go into. get all this, you know, PR praise, and they're they're giving way too much credit when the film is a success, and way too much. Um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm saying here? Critique. You know, they get too much when it, when it goes critique bad. if the film is not good. And it's yeah. frankly, it's it's across the board. It's, did you cast right? Did the producers help you? Uh, was your cinematographer on their game? Yeah. Um, there's a right. hundred things that need to go right. And, um, you know, those things are just critical. And, and films are very fragile creatures that have to be nurtured and brought up and, and, you know, even in post-production, they're not finished until they're really finished. And until someone literally tells you, stop, you can't work anymore on this film, which I was told a couple of times. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, sometimes you push back and say, well, we can go another week, you know, let's give it you, another. You always want that, that I extra need time. more time. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's funny. You, you alluded to something that you kind of mentioned earlier about a director wanting to focus about what's in front of the camera uh, mm-hmm. and talking about, you know, how you impressed you were not only, for example, with Spike Lee, but his cinematographer, Matty Levatique, who, uh, as we all know, is a famous cinematographer. But, you know, they, they do say, and you can probably follow up on this, it, is that, the director is actually one of their biggest jobs is actually uh, casting and not only casting of the actors, but casting of your department heads of your crew, because those are the ones that are going to allow you to let go and really focus on what's in front of the camera. Uh, right. And so I think that, you know, based on, on this idea that, and yeah, there are directors that are more technical that I want to understand, you know, all the, the technical parts of it, the, the camera moves, the, the lens that you're going to use all they, they want to be sort of micromanaging that. But sure. I, I find the directors that really concentrate on the stories and the actors wind up just telling more full stories, more things that are just mm-hmm. feel, feel more real and interesting. Well, casting across the board for a director of anything is 90% of it. I mean, I'll even go yeah. to documentaries. You say, well, documentaries, no casting. And I disagree because, you know, I, it, just bad example maybe, but Tiger King, the reason that was such a hit was this guy, stuck to that story for five years because he believed in that character. And there was another version of that story with another guy that's doing the exact same job, but it didn't work out, let's say. And this guy stuck to that story. And so documentaries are as much about casting as commercials, as feature films. And so, but sticking to the idea of feature films and TV series, when you're finding the right actor, your body will tell you, your instinct will tell you. This is the right person. And, and you can sit there and try and, you know, make compromises and say, well, if, if they're a little better, maybe I can work with that. That's already you making excuses for them. You've got to stick to your guns and say, this is the right person for the for the job. I mean, we we had someone else that we went out to with locked in um, for the lead role of Maggie. And she just wasn't right. There was a lot of reasons why. And I just didn't think it was the right call. And myself and the producers talked about it. And we all agreed. We, we all ended up saying, yeah, even though that person had a name, much like Mina's, it, it wasn't right for the film. And Mina was right for the film. She was the way the part was written. She was the right age. Uh, everything just kind of clicked. Oh, oh no. And, uh, and Carlos clicked. <laughs> <laughs> right clicked on the off. Oh, no. He, he is a director. He said, <laughs> and then it clicked and he clicked off. <laughs> yeah. He's about to click back on and we're not going to edit it. 
We're just gonna go. We're just gonna run with this. Dude, he literally, <laughs> he literally, he called that take. You literally said, and then it clicked, and then you clicked off. That was awesome. <laughs> that was great. You're you are a director. Boop. Yeah. Boop. So um, damn damn iPod things, AirPods, whatever yeah. these things are called. Yeah. Yeah. So that was um, really funny. Yeah. So that's great. I I, I don't want to lose because I'm a big believer in understanding the canon of whoever we're talking about. So um, you mentioned your short films. What's, can you tell us the names of your, of, of your short films? Just in case, I'm yeah, going to check them out, but in, in case the audience wants to check them out too. Yeah, anybody can check them out. They're they're up on my website, carlosgutierrez.tv. Oh, Put it up right there. I, I love to share my shorts. I mean, you know, I, I was fortunate uh, early on while I was at NYU, I found a company that was looking for short films for content around the world. Okay. And I was able to sell three of my films because wow. of the fact that the way that NYU works is they allow you to raise the money yourself and you 100% own your projects. Okay. Not all the film schools, FYI, are like that. Some of them own your films up yeah. until like 10 years after you graduate. So fortunately for me, my films have been shown in a lot of places around the world and um, really helped me get my career started and and they're you know the ones that i have on the side are wet foot dry foot which was uh student academy award nominated uh vino tinto which translates to red wine that's a short that we did in miami with uh one of the actors from wet foot dry foot and uh and then we also have sleight of hand and lechon and lechon translates to pork and that was that was a that was a fun little one because that that was very near and dear to a real experience that happened to me as a child uh, in in Miami, and it's only a Miami story, right? Like it's only a story that feels like it can happen there because it's so, you know, just told from this point of view of this kid who's, you know, uh, trying to discover the world for the first time and comes across this very uh, weird experience. Let's say, yeah, and you know, this is kind of going back to you know when we first started the podcast. I I'm I hail from the Midwest originally, so. Okay. You know, I lived in Michigan, I lived in Chicago cool. and, you know, that part. But also, you know, I spent a lot of my youth in Kentucky, so the South. Mm. But what you do get to understand when you when I came to Miami, it was like, whoa, you know, this place is a lot different than any other place that I've been. Yeah. You know, Miami is yeah. truly unique. I lived in New York also. And New York, you still get this you know, American feel, even though you have the different cultures, you know, and I always say this, one of the big points of Miami and the reason why it probably will always be as unique as it is, is its proximity to Latin America and the Caribbean. So people can traverse back and forth a lot easier and they maintain this strong cultural identity and language because of my Miami's proximity. It's, it, it's truly unique. So um, you know, pieces that come from that particular perspective could feel, you know, very different than other pieces that enter within the American fray, even though you are, for all intents and purposes, because, you know, you were born and raised in Miami, you're fully American. It would feel very unique and very independent of uh, 100%. You know, many different I mean, stories. Listen, I have, uh, first of all, all that you said is 100% right. I mean, it's, for me, I have cousins and friends that, you know, grew up, you know, uh, in different parts of the country, uh, much more, let's say, quote unquote, conservative areas that 
probably would, would think Miami's a little bit of a crazy place to grow up. But, you know, I had such a fun time growing up in Miami. It, it's so near and dear to my heart. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've lived in Boston and New York and L.A. And, and still split my time between L.A. and Miami. It's, you know, Miami's just you know it's just yeah. that it's got this really great texture very similar to you know to what barry jenkins brought forth in, in moonlight you know he was yeah. able to capture that 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 caribbean feel like the water and the sun and the moon hitting i mean the way the moon hits the beach here is there's no other place in the country that i've seen at least that can yeah. pale they all pale in comparison to that and so uh, i feel like that salt air in in your daily life is just something that just feeds something in your soul and uh you know i think miami filmmakers have said a lot but still a lot more to say a lot I think there's a lot more of us coming yeah, yeah. a lot yeah. more of us coming yeah. i think we're all we're all pirates at heart that's what i honestly believe <laughs> i think so too <laughs> yeah i think um, that's a, that's a very good point jose and miami is truly my home you know i've lived here longer than i lived anywhere else and i don't right. want to be i don't want to be in anywhere else but um so now that brings us to your latest film. We talked a little, a lot about it in 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 the top here, um, but let's just talk about how it happened in the first place and how you birthed this baby, <laughs> and um, you know, and, and then what's you know, and what's happening with it as we're moving forward. Sure. So locked in, you know, it's a genre film, and I love genre films. <laughs> just stated from the beginning. Um, I wanted to make a film initially that was an ode to one of my heroes, which is Tony Scott. So I actually wrote this film, director Tony Scott, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Um, I actually wrote the film for him. Like in my mind, I was going to drop this script in front of Tony's lap and be like, you should direct this as your next film. And so it was at that time, and I had met Tony Scott once before he died. It was, you know, so when he died, it was it was kind of overwhelming for me because it, it felt like I had a, a connection to his work. And having just met the guy, and he's just the most gracious, he was the most gracious guy, as you can imagine. Uh, it was, it was uh, a bit disheartening. But anyway, so the point is, I wrote Locked In initially as this bigger film, right? Much bigger, big opening big set pieces in the middle and a big set piece at the end. And once I realized that it wasn't really going to go in that direction, I started to re, you know, redesign it, re-engineer it to be a film that I was going to direct. So then that started a whole new, almost page one rewrite process. Uh, because even though the characters were the same, roughly, it was really like paring it down to, okay, how can I make this manageable? So it's my first feature. Um, so that really became a whole new process of, you know, a producer who believed in it named Elias Aksume. Uh, Elias got the script through a friend of mine, Sandra Avila, who is, they're both still very dear friends of mine. And Sandra was nice enough to recommend to Elias the script. At the time, female leads was still like, why do you have a female lead? You know, uh, I had a producer tell me that, if he had, if I had just written it to be a male lead, they could have sold it yesterday, you know? Um, and I really stuck to it because the way I saw the film is that I mirrored it a lot on the Ripley character in Aliens. So this very strong woman who suddenly becomes extremely maternal and extremely protective of a child, you know? 
Another and Scott, Ridley Scott, who's one of my favorite Scott, directors. The other Scott, man. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it really was something that I, I kind of like kept honing on um, in terms of like who she was. So, and I really just doubled down. I said, no, it's, it's got to be a female lead. I, I'm not going to change it. And so that became a long process of rewriting it. Uh, the producer always believed in it. He optioned it and he renewed the option and uh, kept going at it, even though we had different actors pop in and out. And so we got the right people to do it. And, and that's really like a summary of like, you know, a five-year process. Yeah. But that's pretty much where it was, you know? Yeah. Um, five years to me is not a long time. I've had projects that have been shorter. Obviously, I've had projects that have been longer. So yeah. I'll mention Gregory Allen Howard again. It took him 26 years to bring Harriet to the screen. So, wow. you know, Incredible. time is all. Great yeah, movie, time. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Cynthia Ribbo was nominated for two Oscars. So yeah. that says a lot. Um, so you get to the point where, you know, it's go time. How does it feel when it's like, okay, it's greenlit, it's going to happen? You don't believe it. <laughs> you really, you don't believe it. You really sincerely go, ah, oh, the bottom's going to drop out and we're going to start from scratch again. I mean, that that's sort of my kind of uh, nihilistic view of it because it's like it, the, the amount of stop and go, it's going to happen had, had happened a, a number of times already, uh, as it does in almost every film you hear about it. I mean, it's like very rare that you work with the first person you cast uh, with the first producer that buys into the film. It's, you know, it's it, most films from what I understand go through this process of financing, financing that falls apart, comes back. Um, but, you know, to my producer, Elias's credit, the financing never changed. It was always just finding the right opportunity and right occasion and right actor so that it would all gel together. But there was never like this kind of like, we have it and then everything's gone. I know it's from scratch, but the feeling was incredible. But I was so just like, I have to temper my excitement because I'd heard so many stories about things falling apart two weeks before. I mean, look, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of my film school buddies, Mark Heyman, wrote Black Swan for Darren Aronofsky. And he was telling me how, you know, I think it was four weeks before they shot with Natalie Portman attached, you know, pretty big movie. Um, it's still independent and their financing just collapsed, just gone. And so you can imagine what that does. You know, you either, you either give up at that point or you figure it out and they figured it out. So I think that's the thing. I was just prepared for anything to happen. So I was just on pins and needles and just working. So if I wasn't working on the storyboards, I was working on locations. If I wasn't flying up to Philadelphia where we shot it, I was, uh, you know, sitting in, in a movie theater watching six movies in a row with my, my cinematographer, you know? Yeah. And so who's also, by the way, we got to give a shout out to Sam Brave, local Miami DP, born and raised. Oh, and so, we got to give it 305. That's right. That's right, boy. <laughs> Sam Brave came in. He came in hot, flew up to Philadelphia, landed. It was like, okay, let's do this. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it's literally like being dropped in, in the jungle. Like, you know, you just pushed out of the back of the plane and you got to, you got to hope that the other, the other person with you has your back, you know, and he did, yeah. And yeah. did a great job on the phone. That's yeah. awesome. Wow. You just gave yeah. us the, the nutshell. You gave us the production, the, the right. beginning and, 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 and the production of it. Um, yeah. 
how was it like working with, uh, I mean, have you, have you worked with, um, names as big as hers before or, um, yeah, for commercials, I had done a number of celebrity talent. It wasn't anything. I, I don't get effect, affected by celebrity talent. Honestly, I get affected by celebrity directors. Like, you know, when I met Tony Scott, I was like, <laughs> I, was, I was like so star, like starstruck in the restaurant. And I was so terrified to go say hi to him because I didn't want to bother him. Yeah. But I was like, this may be the last time I ever see this guy. And I just went up to him and said, hi, and Michael Mann, the same thing. I, you know, he was at the premiere of collateral and I got invited by HBO because I had done that short film and they were gracious enough to invite me to uh, Magic Johnson's theater up in Harlem to go to the premiere, the red carpet premiere with Tom Cruise, Jimmy Fox, you know, which is cool. But I, I was like starstruck by Michael Mann. You know, I was like, Oh, that's cool. It's Tom Cruise. I love Tom Cruise, but you know, so, you know, with actors, it, it is really each of them. You hear this a lot, but each of them has their own personality. And I was very fortunate that we got every person that I and the producer and the casting director all agreed on. So that goes from Mina to Jeff Fahey, to Manny Perez, to Bruno Bashir, to Costas Mandalore. You know, they would, they would try and I think like, just see if they could stump me. They'd be like, Oh, do you know Costas? You know, he, we're going to put it in my like, Costas Mandalore from lobsters from this. And I'd, you know, they'd rattle off his IMDb and they'd be like, okay, I guess, I guess you're okay with it. So, you know, it was funny because I, I'm such a fan of, of movies that maybe sometimes are underappreciated as well. Uh, and I really just, you know, Jeff for me is like, oh, my God, I'd seen he has this old movie called uh, from the early 90s called Body Parts that I was a huge fan of genre film. Again, it's not on the top 10 list. But for me, it was such a, a, a such a fun experience because I told him watching that how like that influenced me. And he got a kick out of that. And, you know, he's had a great resurgence. Thanks to Robert Rodriguez. And him and I are now dear friends as well. Like, you know, we text each other all the time, trying to bring him into my second film, uh, as well as him as many of the players as possible. But I will tell you, the, the, the most fun I had in the prep was the casting. And I feel like casting is still my strong suit. And we went through a very rigorous process of casting Mina's daughter, Taryn, the character of Taryn. And we went through a lot of great actresses. I mean... Um, some of them, ironically enough, were cousins. Uh, one of them is the daughter now on uh, on the Mosquito Coast, the big Apple TV show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know okay. the show. So just follow the lineage here. So Jasper Polish, who is in Locked In and plays Mina's daughter, is the first cousin of the girl who plays uh, Justin Thoreau's uh, daughter in the Mosquito Coast. Oh, wow. And so we were going to go to both of them for this role. Uh, but Jasper, you know, just immediately stood out. I mean, she was just great. Like in the casting, we put them through, I think somewhere in the neighborhood, like four or five rounds of auditioning. And, uh, every time she did it, she just nailed it over and over. And I was like, wow, that's just consistency, you know? So, you know, we went in and did a couple little rewrites for her that would fit her character better. But, you know, ultimately, you know, I needed someone that could match Mina also in intensity, you know, because Mina is an intense actress in terms of her performances and really brings her a game. And I needed someone who wasn't going to like shy away from that, you know, that really yeah. can match her. And, and there's a really critical scene in the film where they go mano a mano, uh, emotionally speaking. And it really, you know, they're equally matched in that scene. 
And that honestly is one of my favorite scenes, even though it's a genre film and it's suspense and, you know, you're being chased around this self-storage facility. It's this very quiet scene that erupts uh, that is actually one of my favorite scenes. Is that a Screen Heat exclusive? Your favorite that scene? That is. That <laughs> is, absolutely. We always like to get those exclusives. I think that might go there on our go. socials too. So, <laughs> so this is amazing. The film is about to come out. Um, it's like you said, a passion project. So um, when we start to get towards the tail end, we have two questions that we always ask, but before we get to those questions, um, do you have anything that, I don't want to say anything coming up because I'm sure your focus right now is just on this particular project, but, um, any seeds? Yeah. Well, I can tell you, we have a film that I got put up to direct. That's not my script called stay safe. And, uh, we feel really good about it. We're in uh, early prep mode of it. So I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent, but it looks like it's going to happen sooner than later. And, uh, that is looking really good. And then the other one that uh, I've mentioned to JL, the other film I have is Open House, which is a thriller set in the real estate world in Miami. So we're hoping that we can get that filmed here and uh, hopefully done by the end of the year, if not early 2022. You know, it all depends on actor schedules. Honestly, if it was up to me, I'd shoot these things back to back. But uh, it, it's good to know that, you know, we people are reacting really well to the script of open house because I wrote that one and, you know, I took a lot of time writing it, did a lot of research about the real estate market in Miami and coincidentally right now is the most talked about real estate market in the world. I mean, arguably. Um, And so that's, that's a huge bonus because I think that it's sort of like fodder to really be able to talk about bigger cultural issues and like why we're so obsessed with consumerism and capitalism and this, as they call ultra capitalism that's existing now and how it's like, you know, making people do things that they may not want to do. So it really is, it's a genre film at the end of the day, but it does tell a very cool story about this guy and sort of using this one character as a microcosm for, you know, how obsessed people can be to get what they want. Yeah, um, this has been really great for me and a great lesson for me. Um, as we spoke up briefly a couple of weeks ago, I just shot my first feature and it's, well, you know, it is what it is. Um, it's a thriller, you know? And so that, yeah. So that, that's called deadly night out. So it's not thrillers aren't necessarily the genre that is my specialty. You know, the genre that, that, that I really, um, I feel, um, you know, really go for in terms of directing and writing. I love thrillers, but it was a treat to be able to to direct this thriller. And this has been, you know, from your side, an education on the love of thrillers. So, you know, that, that that's been I, great. I, I, yeah, I can I can talk to you about thrillers from here until Kingdom Come. I mean, I listen, I, I will tell you there are films I want to do that aren't in the thriller suspense genre. But it's just where my brain goes. My brain just yeah. wants to go there. Every time I, I try not to do a thriller, it tends to go back into that. I do have yeah. a drama that is a passion project. Uh, since you were mentioning passion projects, I do have a drama that we're, tr- we're in the process of getting people attached. And if it 
we pull it off, it's going to be a big coup because it's, it's, um, it's not the obvious thing, right? It's not open house or locked in that are easy pitches and just go, okay, it's a mother and a daughter and they're trapped in a self-storage facility one night. Boom. Uh, it's a film that, you know, is really about the acting and about the story. And I don't mean the plot. I mean, the story of what happened to these two women. And it's based on a true story, which I really am starting to dig more and more. Um, nice. And of course, like everyone else, we have a couple of TV shows that No Patient Films, my company, uh, we have a couple of TV shows we're in development on. So that's, you know, yeah, that's a lot. It. That's a lot of seeds. That's a lot yeah, of seeds. Well, you got to plant, you got to plant a big garden. Well, you know, if you want right. to harvest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. This is great. Yeah. yeah. And, and obviously to, to plant the last seed for our audience, uh, as you guys know, MMFM sponsored the table read version of Open House, which will be available, uh, you know, to the industry. It might make a great podcast as well. So you'll be able to get a little sneak peek of what that could be. Uh, but, you know, just based on what we've read, it is awesome. It is really, really, really uh, thrilling, exciting. And I, I can't wait to see that one up on the big screen as well thank you jail appreciate that and thank you kevin i really appreciate both of you taking the time i mean to talk about this film it's it's you know kevin enjoy the opportunity you get and you know uh it is a long long stretch from finishing it to talking about the film and getting it out there so people can see it but it, it is um it's you only make your first film once right so that's, that's the right thing. enjoy the process yep so we're going to encapsulate your stretch in these last two questions. So okay. I think JL, usually you take the first one. So I think that's can, how we do it. Can you can you shoot that shot? <laughs> <laughs> right. Now you gotta switch from, from Tony Scott and Thrillers to Robert Zemeckis and Back to the Future. So imagine if the Carlos Gutierrez of 2021 could go back in time and speak to the young Carlos either in NYU film school, just starting out there in New York or even before in high school. What advice would you give to yourself then knowing what you know now? It's a great question, JL. I honestly would tell young Carlos to say, just keep filming, keep making movies short, try and make a long feature if you can with just, you know, get a bunch of friends together, come up with the best story you can come up with for the budget you have. Don't try and make something bigger that you can't afford to make. Make something that is the within the parameters of the budget you can raise. And I would say, look, it, it might sound like sacrilege, but film school is not as relevant to today's filmmakers as it once was. Um, yeah. So I would say with film school, it's a, it's a dicey proposition because right now you have so many tools at your disposal for making digital media of any sort that you just have to do that. That's what you have to do. And that's what film school is about. It's about the relationships and giving you the tools to just keep trying and pushing your art every day, pushing your art every day. And so if you're thinking about going to film school because you, you think it's just going to like answer all your questions, don't go in there with that. Go in there because you want to meet people that are going to expand your horizon. Awesome. And, you know, this is a piece of advice that that is, I, I think, one of the best pieces of advice that that whole chunk. Um, I talk to my students and I tell them and, th and this is from uh, one of the, one of the biggest filmmakers of all time. You know, just get your friends together, shoot your first film, shoot your first project, 
And then every project after that is just negotiating your rates. So mm. it is just getting to it and, and, and really doing it. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, you can raise $60,000, $100,000, go shoot your movie. And, but don't try to make, you know, exception for a hundred thousand dollars. That's the point. <laughs> right. You know, the, the ones that have stood out are people that created contained films that were about the characters. And, and if you're trying to do 25 locations in 10 days, you're, you're not going to win. You're not going to win that battle because it's a battle. It's a battle of time and money and you're going to lose that battle. But if you're smart and you try and do it self-contained, like the, the Duplass brothers or that super famous Sundance movie primer that was all shot in like a, like a, I think it's a storage locker or something. I don't even remember what it was. Um, you know, you really give yourself an opportunity to hone your craft and not worry about logistics. These logistics are what sink the battleship, you know? Yeah. That's almost the answer for the next question, which is what advice would you give to people getting into the industry, want, wanting to get into the industry? And, you know, maybe even, you know, beginners that are already in the industry that want to keep things moving. Yeah, I think, you know, when someone asks you what you eventually want to do and you legitimately don't know the answer, tell them that. Don't, you know, make up an answer. If you really want to direct, tell them that you want to direct, but that you're open to doing anything. I mean, I did a lot of jobs. I did research jobs for directors. I was a PA uh, to make the bills, you know, in New York, because, you know, New York ain't cheap. And uh, I had to do a bunch of stuff. I was a bartender. And, you know, I, the advice I would say is, yes, hone your craft, find people, find mentors. That's number one. But do stuff that is not always film related. You know, if you have a sociology degree, go work in a shelter. Go, you know, work in a, in a psychiatric hospital. I don't know, because there's stories that are just everywhere around the world and you're not going to find them watching movies over and over because then you're just going to copy movies. What you want to do is find a story that's near and dear to your heart of something that let's say you did in college and say your major and you just haven't thought about it. And it's like, what if I did a major of, um, I don't know, um, like I was saying psychology and you just focus on, on figuring out a story that speaks to you. A great example is this movie sound of metal. That was, you know, the big hit this year. Uh, Oscar nominated, won a few Oscars, I think, for uh, sound design. And the performance is outstanding. And it's basically a real story from this guy who, uh, you know, was a musician. He didn't go deaf, but he was around deaf people as a child. So he just combined these two things in his life. And lo and behold, he gets this amazing story that seems so simple on the page but is I found to be one of the best films of the year. Mm, good advice. Yeah. Great advice. Life, life, ex, real life experience. You don't get a lot of that with the, the 20 somethings now wanting to make big Spielberg movies, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, right. that's, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. They used to say that, you know, a director really couldn't even start until they were 40, right. Because they didn't have enough life experience. Right. to go with everything they were trying to espouse in their story. So that's great. I, and we haven't heard a lot of that particular advice on Screen Heat. So I think that's a really good, a really, really good piece of advice for our for our younger filmmakers out there. Yeah. Cool. And, and emerging filmmakers, it could be any age. So um, this has been a treat. We 
love marrying all elements. We wish that we were still in the podcast room to have you live and in person, but marrying all the elements of, you know, feature film and a Miami director and a Miami writer, since you're both, you know, um, really, really is always one of our, our bigger treats because we are Screen Heat Miami. We're really, really looking forward to the film. Uh, can't wait. And uh, thank you for this. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it, man. I hope everybody checks this movie out. Even if you can't make it to theaters, even if you don't feel comfortable, rent it. VOD, iTunes, etc. There you go. <laughs> Love it. Okay. There you go. All right, guys. That, Thank that's... you so much. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Jail. One for the ages. All right, and we are back. That was a fantastic masterclass, as you said before, Kevin. Uh, so excited for Carlos, not only for his totality of his career and his journey, but this great movie, Locked In, which we're all going to go and see this weekend, starting May 7th, BOD and theaters. I'll be locked in on Friday. Ah, I, I knew the pun was coming. It is. Damn. <laughs> you got one, Kevin. <laughs> Man, that was really cool. You, to, I, you know, I mentioned being in a commercial that Spike Lee produced and to, you know, really see the master at work was, was something. But to hear how Carlos worked so closely with him and, 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 and was mentored by him was something else. Absolutely. And, you know, that can only just become through osmosis a part of who he is as a uh, creative. And so... I'm just waiting to see uh, to see if there's any any kind of uh, reflection. Absolutely, reflection on that. You know, are we going to have some uh, standing in place, moving in place, um, dolly shots? You know, what are, what are we going to have there? He said Tony Scott is you know one of his uh, favorite directors, so right. I want to see that kind of influence and see if that that happens in the film. Um, but to, to hear how he developed as a filmmaker, that that's something else. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a great, that was a great one. So we're excited for Carlos. We're going to be rooting for him this weekend and beyond. So yeah, man. But I think, you know, we have a couple of more stories before we sign off. Um, yeah. You know, 305. Wanna... We have hometown. We, yes. We got to have the Absolutely. hometown interview, but we have a hometown yes. story. We do. Yeah. Speaking of Carlos Gutierrez, he is Cuban-American from Miami, but two other notable Cuban-Americans from our town, Gloria Stefan and Andy Garcia, have decided to join forces to star in a remake of the Warner Brothers comedy Father of the Bride, which is about a Cuban wedding in the 305. So that yeah. is going to be really fun to watch. It's that's set to start shooting actually later this summer. So we're hoping for maybe, you know, an early 2022 release. We'll see. But uh, I think it's a long time coming, my friend. Long time coming. That's right. <laughs> I mean, you know, to see the transcendence of the careers of a lot of actors that come from Miami and we could just even speak in, in the Cuban dynamic. Um, Andy Garcia is as big as it gets a list. But, you know, you can remember the nascent start of his career and the evolution of his career. And, you know, I've, I've spoken with Andy Garcia um, on a couple of occasions and, you know, you could still feel the 305 in him, you know, it's a cool guy. Yeah. We interviewed his, uh, you know, his nephew 
uh, Jordi Villasuso right. um, a couple of interviews ago. And, you know, they maintain, they still maintain this feeling of, of what Miami is. And, um, you know, we have Oscar Isaacs. Uh, That's right. That's another one. He's about another to, homeboy. <laughs> he's about to play Moon Knight. Oh, yeah. He's one of huge. my favorite characters. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to see that. But, you know, and you saw the transcendence of his career. So to see two powerhouses from Miami come together, Gloria Estefan and Andy Garcia, it's like, okay, finally, boom, you know? Yeah, it is. So it's, that's it's great. That's a big thing, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 a, and a hometown um, story. Yeah. So, yeah, that's going to be exciting, uh, fun to watch. And I, I can't wait. I'll be, I'll be watching that, looking for all the, the little Cuban moments. Maybe I'll be drinking some cafecito out of Ventanita in Little Havana, uh, some pastelito talk. <laughs> you might have to go to Domino Park and play some dominoes first. I'm sure. I'm Are you sure. bringing the whole family out? The whole family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so everybody coming out. <laughs> everybody. So we do have. You know, and we're not going to end on this note, but we were talking earlier about the dynamic change, not only in Hollywood, but the dynamic change across the nation and around the world in terms of culture. I mean, the Me Too movement was the spark that sparked all around the world. And what was one of my favorite shows and this is not too long ago because it went off the air, what, six years ago, maybe? Maybe six years ago? Uh, yeah, yeah, you're talking about uh, Entourage. was Entourage. started in t- 2004 until 2011. I think it was the official run on HBO. Yeah. Loved that show. Yeah, a lot of fun. And, you know, going back to what we were saying in the opening, you know, sort of around the time where I was in L.A., I could relate a lot to the lifestyle, uh, particularly, you know, the agency world that is depicted. Uh, you know, uh, we all know that uh, that that's such a great job, Jeremy Piven playing the role of Ari Gold. Uh, you know, yeah. he won a couple Emmys for that. Uh, but, yeah, he was just he was so on point in terms of that chest pounding that we talked about earlier uh, and that kind of like alpha male kind of personality. Uh, But I just thought the show was, it was funny. It was a lot of fun. It had heart. It really was about friends and family coming together, you know, to kind of traverse this crazy universe of show business. Uh, And I just thought overall, it was just a fun, light piece of entertainment and it was great and it had its great moments. So, you know, I was surprised to hear from the creator, Doug Ellen, who basically said that HBO Max, the streamer has been sort of downplaying it on the platform, not putting it on the favorites list. Uh, Him also saying that he wasn't able to get a second deal done at HBO because, you know, what he's saying is that, quote, woke culture has sort of chimed in and is suppressing anything that feels un-PC nowadays. So, you know, not sure how much of that is true and how much that went into the actual decision-making by HBO, but it is strange that, that, that a show that was that popular and, and did win and got nominated for so many awards was kind of pushed down the list, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really haven't heard much. And it was one of their most popular shows at that time, if not you know, the most popular show at the time. Right. I mean, right. And to not hear much from that show, I don't know. There could be, I don't know if the credence to that has to, yeah. if it is the Me Too movement, you know, the new movement uh, right. happening in, in culture or if yes. it's something else. But I definitely haven't heard much in terms of, you know, this is something that is 
um, you know, one of our biggest hits of all time. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. So I know, yeah, it doesn't seem that they are showing it a lot of love, but you know, maybe things can turn around. Maybe they can find a way to bring it back. Maybe this was the little spark plug they needed to kind of, you know, maybe either do a reboot, maybe do like a, a you know, it'd be kind of fun to see the old gang kind of traverse woke Hollywood in the post Me Too world. I thought that would be, you know, that would be an interesting, an interesting move to yeah. see how they figure all that out. But I'd, I'd love to see a version of that today. So, you know, if HBO is listening and Doug, you're listening, we're fans and, and we hope you can make it happen the way Ari Goldwood. <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. This has been happen. a fun week. Oh, this has been a fun week, but I, I think I think it's time to wrap it. Uh, we've uh, we've had a, a great time, and again, we're really 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 going to be rooting for our boy uh, Carlos Gutierrez this week with his movie coming out. Hometown three hundred five. Here we go. I love it. All right, so that's another one in. And oh, yes. We will hear you next week. We didn't tell you at the top of the key, but I'm Kevin Sharpley. I'm JL Martinez. This is Screen Heat Miami. Dolly. Boom. Ah!